Matthew chapter 5, and uh, I'll read the first 12 verses again, even though that takes in all of the Beatitudes. We're only going to talk about one of them, hopefully finish up with that first one today. But let's get the context and be ready for what lies ahead, okay? Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. This is overlooking the Sea of Galilee. When he was set or seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth. No doubt there was a moment of silence first, and everybody got settled. And then they were all ears when he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Great classic passage of Scripture from the Word of God. We're getting into the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. That's the name of our series. And I'll be honest with you, I've never been more excited about a sermon series than this one in all of my 22 years here as pastor. I really believe with all my heart that the church where it is in America today desperately needs the Sermon on the Mount. You know why? We have come to accept as normal what other churches much like us are doing and acting. We follow the leader. We're imitators. We don't want to stand out like a sore thumb But what Jesus describes here as the norm just turns nominal Christianity upside down. It turns it on on its head. It defies our norms. It challenges our preconceptions. It corrects our mistaken notions. I hope you'll see this as we get into this, but Jesus doesn't hesitate to sacrifice sacred cows. He startled people. He offended people. And I don't want to offend you by my disposition, but if I offend you by my position, and if I, I rub you the wrong way by some of the things I say, as Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, used to say, just turn the cat around, okay? We are not making a study of best practices here. We are looking at the divine blueprint and saying, where have we gone astray? The greatest sermon ever preached 
begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced, what we know as the Beatitudes. Eight virtues are cataloged here. They're not a menu of options. These are essential characteristics of every true child of God who expects to be blessed. I think it's important to note that the order of these Beatitudes is significant. The very first one, poverty of spirit, is foundational for all the others. Each characteristic implies the next. You can't be poor in spirit and not mourn in the sense of spiritual sorrow over sin. You can't mourn without hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And that kind of spiritual craving cannot be found in any who are not meek and peacemakers and so forth. Each one implies the other, the next. It's also important to note that these characteristics are spiritual ones. Jesus is not talking about natural talents and temperaments. I think it's, it has to be said. We might just instinctively think he is, but he's not. For example, Saul of Tarsus, who became the great Apostle Paul, was not naturally humble and poor in spirit. He testified of himself. He gave his own testimony, and he said, I was a proud, self-righteous Pharisee. But when God saved him so dramatically on that road to Damascus, (laughs) God changed him. God graced him. He became Paul, the foremost apostle to the Gentiles. And what do we hear from his lips and what do we read from his pen after that? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Oh, you wouldn't have heard the zealous Pharisee say that. I am less than the least of all saints. I'm willing to be deemed the filth and off-scouring of all things. I mean... Ladies, what you scrape out of the bottom of the frying pan, that stuff that sticks. He said, I'm willing to be deemed that. That's humility, folks. And that could have only been wrought in this zealous Benjamite and proud Pharisee by the grace of God. And Paul acknowledged that. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Likewise, no genuine Christian can say, as we read these Beatitudes that are requirements, not a menu of options, no genuine Christian can say, I can't help it. I can't be humble or merciful. It's just not my gift. It's not my natural tendency. It's not who I am. You know, I got to be me. Somehow we've bought into that lie. So then the attitudes of the Beatitudes are dispositions wrought by grace, not by nature. Stop and think about it for a moment. If, if, these were, if the blessings associated with these attitudes were granted to natural temperaments, wouldn't that kind of be unfair? Who among us chose our natural temperament. If you're naturally cheerful, optimistic, 
yeah, you have to cultivate some things to, to stay that way, I understand. But you can no more take responsibility for that or credit for that than your hair color or eye color. And so, wouldn't it be unfair for God to insist on that here if it's just a matter of natural tendencies, gifts? The point is, and please don't miss this, Jesus is saying with these spiritual virtues, these essential characteristics, all believers are to be like this. He's not just describing super saints and exceptional Christians. All Christians are to manifest all of these traits. Now, in some believers, a given characteristic will be more prominent than in another believer. And even in the same believer, one trait will be more prominent than another trait. But all Christians are to have all these characteristics. So having said that and laid the foundation, I hope you're a little bit more desirous to meet the first condition, this foundational characteristic, and that is poor in spirit, poverty of spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to talk about what that means. We got started last week. We didn't get too far because I laid a big, quite an introduction and foundation for the whole series. But we're going to talk about what it means to be poor in spirit, and then we're going to focus on this blessing that is associated with it if we meet this condition, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Last week we honed in, first of all, on the essence of true humility. Poverty of spirit means humility. And as I said last week, Jesus is not talking about physical poverty. It's no sin to be poor, but it's no sin to be rich necessarily. The poverty that Jesus is extolling is not physical poverty. He's not advocating this monkish idea that we need to take a, a vow of poverty. Please don't use this beatitude and press it into the service of the woke agenda of our day. What is the essence of bankruptcy spiritually? That's what he's talking about. Well, we talked about three things. I'll review them quickly. First of all, it is the absence, or we could even say the abandonment of self-reliance. If you're poor in spirit, you're not going to be relying on yourself. You're not going to be stuck on yourself. Some people don't think they're stuck on themselves, but they're just all absorbed in themselves. I see that in our day. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. They're just people that are absorbed in self. And they may even do things for other people, but they're just absorbed in self. Self-reliance is relatively considered to be a virtue in our culture, but it is not a virtue in the kingdom of heaven. It is false religion. As we noted last week, there are no self-made Christians. There may be some self-made Americans, and we get pretty proud of that. But there are no self-made Christians, only God-made ones. Furthermore, self-reliance is the enemy of faith. It has been truly said, I don't know who I first read, so I don't know who to give credit, but it's not original with me. A man's religion is his reliance. Men may think, ladies for that matter, may think, well, I'm irreligious or I'm neutral when it comes to matters of religion. No, no, you're not. Every man, every woman has a religion. 
Your religion is your reliance. You tell me what is the supreme good in your life, that is your faith. That is your religion. And you are either trusting in yourself or that thing, your own efforts, or you are trusting in Jesus Christ and His atoning work is your hope of heaven. There's no middle ground. And you must acknowledge in the words of the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling in order to be saved. So true humility consists, first of all, in the abandonment, the absence of self-reliance. It consists, secondly, in an acceptance of God's assessment of ourselves. I chuckle when I think about this. Did you know that the Bible tells the unvarnished truth about man? That's one of the reasons you know that this book is divinely inspired, because man wouldn't tell on himself the way it is in this book. What man would say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? What man would say, I'm I'm like an unclean thing, all of my righteousnesses are, are as filthy rags? No, but that's what God says. God sees us all as sinners. We're not just sick, we're not just lame, we're not just wounded. We're dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins. We don't compare ourselves. The dead don't compare themselves with somebody else who's dead. It's not a matter of dead, dead, or indebtedness. When you're dead, you're dead. And we're all dead in trespasses and in sins in our natural state. But once we trust in Christ for salvation, turning from our sin in repentance, turning unto Jesus Christ, putting our faith in Him, we become God's dear children. And oh, how differently He sees us. We are accepted in the Beloved. We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. His face is toward us. We are complete in Him. And we can say with Paul, I can now do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Listen. It's not pride to say that, to accept what God says about you. In fact, it's mock piety to fail to see things that way. Thirdly, true humility consists, true poverty of spirit consists of an acknowledgement of God's ownership. It's wrong to make a fuss of our own unworthiness. And I mentioned two popular literary characters. Well, one's not so literary, it's just a media figure. Barney Fife going around saying, I'm all choked up with humbleness and humility. And before that, Uriah Heep in Charles Dickens' famous novel, David Copperfield, he was the one always going around saying, I'm just an humble, humble person. How much better to just say with the Apostle Paul, I have nothing that I have not received. And he said that to the Corinthians as well. They were pretty proud. They were pretty elated and arrogant about their spiritual attainments and gifts. But we need to be able to say, I am a steward of the manifold grace of God. God is the owner. God is the giver. And I am just the caretaker. At any moment, I may be called upon to give account of my stewardship, as we saw when we studied the parables. Be it much or little. 
So positively, that's, that, that's what humility is. It's the absence or the abandonment of self-reliance. It's an, ex, it's an acceptance of God's assessment of ourselves. It is an acknowledgement of His ownership. But now we want to move on to a very vital point about this matter of true humility, and that is the evidence of it. How does it manifest itself? This is important because humility, as we already mentioned, is, is an elusive virtue. As the great man of God and revivalist of the past from South Africa, Andrew Murray said, humility is that grace that when you think you have it, you just lost it. It's so elusive. And yet God's Word gives us certain criteria for determining if we are growing in grace and Certainly that would include the grace of humility, since it's so fundamental, so foundational. What are the evidences of true humility? Okay, first of all, the evidence is an acceptance of the strengths and virtues of others. And a corollary of that would be realization of our own weaknesses and sins. Just give you a few verses. I hope you jot these down. You'll probably see them on the outline. Philippians 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife. And or vainglory, that is for show, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. In the same vein, Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 10, be kindly affection one to another in brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. And if that's our default setting, if that's just the way God, by, by grace God has made us, when others succeed, we're going to be happy for them. You ever notice people that just, when somebody else's kid gets honored, they can't smile? When their kid gets honored, they can. When others succeed, we should be happy for them. When they fail, we should sincerely encourage them. By the way, we should do this for our enemies, those who don't like us. And to do that, you have to have had a good dose of the grace of God. The second evidence of true humility is an acceptance of circumstances, no matter how bad. Would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? I think you'll recognize if you've been saved any length of time studying the Word of God. The epistle of 1 Peter is written to suffering saints. It's a general epistle. And when our suffering is for Christ's sake, how are we to regard it? Well, Peter addresses that. First Peter 4, well, let's begin with verse 15 to just get more of the context. Verse 15, 1 Peter 4, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, one of the three places the word Christian is found in the Bible, only three. But yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. We should boast in our suffering. Paul said in Romans 8, 17 and 18, for I reckon, he was a good old southerner, wasn't he? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And if we really understand that, if we really buy into that, when circumstances don't go our way, we don't become angry or critical. Neither do we complain. 
We don't have an entitlement complex. I see a lot of Christians with that. When something comes their way, they, they're quick to say, I don't deserve this. Okay, what do you deserve? If I know my Bible, I deserve hell. Anything else is better than that. We don't try to pull strings. We don't try to manipulate people to accomplish what we want. Some people are good at that. They're masters at it. They're crafty at it. Neither are we lazy. We, don't, we do try to improve our circumstances. When it is within our power, we're not complacent, but we are content. As Paul said to Philippians 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. No entitlement complex, no complaining, no instinctive anger, no lashing out at others because they've got it better than we are and we're as, we're as good as they. That's humility. That's an evidence of it. A third evidence would be a reluctance, and if you can't say amen, just say oh me here, okay? Because I have to say oh me. I'm not looking for amens on this one. A reluctance to speak of one's accomplishments or experience. Think about that for a moment. Those who are truly humble are like little children. They feel that their attainments are, are only the attainments of babes in Christ. They are ashamed of their low level of love and of gratitude, their low level of knowledge of God. So when they begin to learn, they think, oh, I've got so much more to learn. But some people, and sadly some Christians, think their experiences are so extraordinary and so wonderful. They kind of expect that when they share them, we're to ooh and ah over them. And they think just because they acknowledge God for them, that they acknowledge God as the source of, of, of those experiences or privileges, that they're not proud. Be careful. I was mentioning to my wife on the way here this morning, I grew up listening to an evangelist who's in heaven, has been for several years. I will not name him. I'll never forget, even as a teenager, hearing him say this. He would get up and, in a hushed tone, getting everybody's attention, he'd say, five minutes after something of consequence is said in the White House, I have a source, and I know it. Well, what were we supposed to do? Ah, wow. That's not humility. I don't know what it is. It may be stupidity. It may be just a lying. I don't know. You know, that Pharisee that Jesus described who went up into the temple to pray with the publican who was truly humble, it was the proud Pharisee who said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. When you start talking that way, you know you're in trouble with God. Oh, how subtle is this thing of pride. How deceitful are our own hearts. A fourth evidence of true humility is that there's a keen insight into our own sinfulness. Later on in the same sermon, 
Jesus tells his disciples, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, before you try to cast out the speck that is in your brother's eye, look in the mirror and cast out the beam that is in your own eye. The two by four, the plank. That's what it really means, the plank. That's in Matthew 7, verses 3 and 5. In the same vein, the Apostle Paul writes the Galatians and says in chapter 6 of his epistle to them that before we seek to restore our erring brother, one that is caught in a fault, it refers to a moral fault, before we seek to restore our erring brother, we need to consider ourselves, lest we also be tempted. The truly humble have little sense of their own goodness. It amazes them to think that other saints would have as little grace as they do in view of the unspeakable love of Christ. Did you know that the most eminent saints in the Bible and in Christian history are the ones who are the most sensitive to sin in their hearts and lives? They see their own sin so clearly. They lament it. They're not satisfied to peacefully coexist with it. Their hearts echo to the sentiments of the Apostle Paul, who as a mature Christian, please don't interpret Romans chapter 7 as Paul's experience before he got saved on the road to Damascus. No! You miss the whole thing, the whole import, if you look at it that way. Sometimes we look at Romans 7 and say, well, that Romans 7 was his life as a, before the Damascus Road, Romans 8 is the spirit-filled life after he got saved. No, no, no. Romans 7 and Romans 8 go hand in hand. And Romans 7, 24, Paul, as a mature believer, conscious of the strife in his own nature, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's real quiet. I hope it's because I've got your attention. One of the godliest men that I've ever read after, and I mean this sincerely, and you know me, I'm a reader. I don't read much online, but I read a lot of books. I've got more books than I can, not as many as Brother Eddie, but I've got a lot of books. And one of the men that I love to read after is Jonathan Edwards brilliant man. He's not easy to read. It's pretty deep. But Jonathan Edwards associated with the great evangelical awakening, the first evangelical awakening, the revival that swept through the colonies in the early, well, the 1740s primarily, was a godly man. I mean, he called himself to account at the end of the day for his life. He had periodic checkpoints where he fasted and prayed to He was circumspect. He was full of love. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And the reason you know that, are you listening, is because his wife and his kids respected him for it. But listen to Jonathan Edwards. And I'm reading word for word so I don't get it wrong. I'm not paraphrasing. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his journal, he didn't didn't expect this to be for public consumption, I have often had very affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness, very frequently so as to hold me in a kind of loud weeping. 
sometimes for a considerable time together, so that I have often been forced to shut myself up. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than I ever had before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I would appear the very worst of all mankind, and I would have by far the lowest place in hell. When I see my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And yet it seems to me that my conviction of sin is so exceedingly small and faint, it is enough to amaze me, amaze me that I have no more sense of my sin than I do. Was he just trying to brag on his humility? I don't think so. Beloved, do we know what manner of spirit we are of? Do we know what we are capable of apart from the grace of God? Or will God have to shock us by giving us over to our depravity? I'm serious. Those who are truly humble have the keenest sense of their own sinfulness. Fifthly, those who are humble have a readiness to praise God for His great grace. There's nothing inconsistent with what I've said before and with this. Paul said, and I just dropped the reference down, 1 Timothy 1 verse 14, after he gave a catalog of what he was before he got saved, before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, how he was a foremost persecutor of the church, injurious and a blasphemer. Then he says, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. May I say that this is the language of the truly humble. They can't say enough about Jesus Christ. They can't say enough about His grace extended to them, manifested to them. They never cease to wonder and marvel that God should set His love upon them. Like Paul, they feel that they are, are less than the least of all saints and that they are what they are by the grace of God. So whatever else somebody else may accuse them of, they think just like you've heard me say from David Brainerd, their instinctive thought is, oh, if they knew what I knew about myself, how much worse would they talk about me? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be, the hymn writer wrote. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Is that your default setting? I have one more point this morning. It's 5 to 12. I won't be done by 12, but I'll get done. The third point is the exaltation of true humility. We're talking about the essence of it, the evidence of it. The third is the exaltation. I don't always alliterate. I hope you know I'm not a slave to alliteration. But sometimes it comes naturally, and maybe it helps you remember, maybe not. Maybe it makes it harder. I don't know. But the exaltation of true humility Look at the blessing that Jesus associates with this characteristic mandated for us, poverty of spirit. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, the tense of the verb is critically important. He says the same thing, 
The Beatitudes are bookended with this, the first and the last. Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say, for theirs shall be. In just a few minutes, you'll see why. Jesus calls his disciples blessed, truly happy, joyous, to be envied, divinely favored, are those who are, uh, who are truly poor in spirit. Before we go any further, can you imagine how this must have struck the ears of the multitudes for him to say this to his disciples? It mentions the multitudes. I don't think it was just the disciples that heard him on that hillside. That which belongs to the whole people of Israel, according to God's promise to Abraham, is now being awarded to a small community of hand-chosen disciples by Jesus. I think the multitudes were shocked. They were probably initially offended. But this is a spiritual blessing for a spiritual people. And we're reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. I didn't say that, and I'm not talking about replacement theology here. Let's understand what Paul meant. There is a true Israel of God made up of those who do not pride themselves in their pedigree. They don't say quickly, we're the sons of Abraham. But they cast themselves in humility upon the mercy of God in Christ. And Jesus says, to them and to them alone belongs the kingdom. Ah, boy, the Jews wanted the kingdom. They thought they were in the kingdom. They were looking for a, a Messiah who would usher in the kingdom. Please don't miss this. There is absolutely no entrance into the kingdom, whatever it is, whatever manifestations it may have, without the humility that leads to repentance. And we don't hear this in our fundamentalism anymore. We want to be upbeat and positive, keep the service moving, positive spirit. And I'm all for that to a degree. I don't think we want to have a funeral every time we come. But I'll tell you what, sometimes we need to do some deep soul searching. And people don't get saved in a carnival spirit like some churches have. You know, one of my heroes was David Brainerd. He was, of course, good friends with Jonathan Edwards, whom I already talked about. Brainerd didn't live to be as old as Edwards. He only lived to be 29, not quite 30. As the advanced stages of tuberculosis were ravaging his body in 1747, he wasn't exactly on his deathbed, but he was pretty close to it. He was in the city of Boston, and then he went to Northampton and died in the home of Jonathan Edwards after that. But as he was in Boston and he knew he was dying, he called for his brother pastors, and numbers of them came to hear his dying counsels. Now, if I was dying, and I don't think I am, but if I was dying and I had something to tell you, would you want to come and hear me? I hope you would. These preachers did. And this is what Brainerd said. He stressed this. The one thing he stressed was this, and I'll read, I know I read 
verbatim what Edward said. Let me read verbatim what Brainerd put in his journal. He stressed the nature and necessity of that humiliation, self-emptiness, or full conviction of a person's being utterly undone in himself, which is necessary to saving faith. And he also stressed the extreme difficulty of being brought to this and the great danger there is a person's taking up with some self-righteous appearance of it. He said this, the danger of this that I especially dwelt upon, being persuaded that multitudes perish in this way, and so little is said from the pulpits about it, is that persons being never effectually brought to die in themselves are never truly united to Christ. and so perish. Was he right? Or was that just the fruit of his melancholy temperament? And he was a melancholy. Edward said he was a melancholy of melancholies. I think he spoke the truth. Those who are never brought to die in themselves are never truly united to Christ, and the reason they become what we call carnal Christians is they never die. And so pastors have to placate the flesh, pander to the flesh. Beloved, poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for being in a right relationship with the king. There shall no flesh glory in his presence. The Bible says that. Oh, the flesh will glory in the presence of others. The flesh will compare itself to others. The flesh will strut on the stage of this world. But God is not impressed. Though others may ooh and ah. Now one more thing we need to talk about before I finish today. And that is what is meant by the kingdom of heaven here. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. Jesus said is the kingdom. He didn't say shall be. The Jews were looking just for that physical manifestation of the kingdom. They wanted to, be, uh, to throw off the Romans. They wanted to, to rule and reign with their Messiah. And they thought they were the privileged ones who would get to do that. They were looking for heaven to come to earth in a grandiose manifestation. But Jesus stressed the present element. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, before I go any further... It's important to realize that the, the expression, the kingdom of heaven, is the same as the kingdom of God in the Gospels. All you need to do to be convinced of that is to read Matthew's Gospel and then to read uh, um, Luke's Gospel. And you'll see that Matthew says the kingdom of heaven in the very same context where Luke says the kingdom of God. If they're interchangeable. What is meant by the kingdom of heaven? Please listen carefully. Because as dispensationalists, and I am a dispensationalist. I guess I'm a leaky one. But we have just, we've bought into this. Okay, please don't throw, I might ought to stay behind the pulpit so I don't get something thrown at me. As dispensationalists, we've got this idea that Jesus came and offered the kingdom when he presented himself to Israel, but because they rejected it, this parenthesis 
of the church age set in and the kingdom was postponed. Where in the Bible does it say that? I've scoured it. I can't find it. I know some classic dispensationalists that say that, but I don't see it in the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. He didn't say, if I overthrow the Romans and do everything you're thinking and bring the kingdom down from heaven, then it's manifested. No, he said, when I show forth my authority and my power, that's where the kingdom is. The kingdom of heaven is the sphere of Christ's rule. Christ showed that he had authority over demons, over the powers of Satan. At his command, demons exited those that they had been controlling. I do want you to see this verse. I've quoted a lot of verses today. We didn't have time for you to turn to, but please turn to Luke chapter 17, please. Luke 17. Read verses 20 and 21. Jesus is answering the Pharisees here. You'll see this. That's why we'll begin in verse 20. They were looking for this external manifestation of the kingdom of God. They weren't interested in any internal aspect of it. Verse 30, or verse 20, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. That means outward show. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you, or literally in your midst. Question, why was that? Because the king was there. (laughs) The king was there. Christ was saying, in effect, get rid of this materialistic notion of the kingdom. I am the king, and I am showing forth the power and authority of God. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. The reign of Christ is being manifested right now before your eyes. Remember Jesus sent some of his disciples on short-term missions trips, we would call them. First he sent 12, then he sent 70. When he sent the 12 out, he told them that if cities refused to receive them, that they were to say, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. The kingdom has come nigh unto you. Beloved, let's rid ourselves of all preconceptions, Dr. Bottle Stopper's books and all, okay. The kingdom of God is present at this moment in all true believers. Unfortunately, the Roman church has confused things and equated the kingdom with the professing church. The professing church has that mixed multitude, so that is not the kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven? Secondly, the kingdom of heaven is now present in all who are true believers. Now, if, if I get excited here, y'all excuse me. I, I saw this in a deeper way than I've ever seen it before. You and I have already been made kings and priests unto God. I hope you're looking at a Baptist priest. You knew that, right? I can't forgive your sins, but I'm a priest. In Colossians 1 verse 13, Paul said, 
referring to God who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, aren't you glad? And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He didn't say shall, he said hath. We belong already to the kingdom of heaven. We have changed our allegiance from the prince of this world, the devil, to the Lord of glory, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. And the implications of this truth are absolutely staggering. I can only begin to touch the hem of the garment, but I hope it will be enough to whet your appetite. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21. Remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to some star-struck Corinthians. They, they were guilty of, of just um, uh, being polarized behind champions, men that they loved and gloried in, whether it was Paul himself or Cephas or the silver-tongued orator Apollos, and Paul had to rebuke them for their divisiveness. And so he says in verse 21, Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. We'll talk about that. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the ones that they were campaigning for, as it were, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, almost like the closing verses of Romans 8, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he mentions these things. And then he goes on to say, all are yours. And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Did you catch that? All of these things listed and others are, are, are yours. So I ask you this morning, and I'll ask you more than once, do you possess the world, or does the world possess you? Are you reigning over the world? Is it your servant, or is it your master? Through our union with Christ, if we see ourselves the way Jesus does, we are not only risen, but we are reigning with Him. The Bible says we are seated with Him in the heavenlies, seated with Him together on His throne. Let me just break this up briefly and we're done. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, by extension, he's talking about the leaders in the church. Did you know that the leaders in the church belong to you? You don't belong to them. They make a contribution for your good. As Peter said, they're not to be lords over God's heritage. And that means me just as much as anybody else. As your pastor, I am the under-shepherd of this flock, but there's a chief shepherd that I answer to. There is such a thing as pastoral authority, but it is not one that I demand or usurp. I was reading a few months ago, and it just knocked me off my feet what David said as a shepherd, he was a shepherd of both sheep and people. He said in Psalm 18, verse 47, it is God that subdueth the people under me. And if there's any pastoral authority that this man in the pulpit has today, it has to be of God. You're not going to hear me get up and harangue in this pulpit and say, touch not mine anointed, do my prophets no harm. Be careful what you say. You're not going to hear me say that. I tell you what I'm doing. I'm going, to, I'm going to be the errand boy that delivers God's word to you. And once I've done that, it's between you and God. I'm not the king. I'm not a Baptist pope. I'm just an ambassador on business for the king. 
and I rest my case with you. The leaders of the church are yours. If you see yourself the way God does. The world is yours, Paul goes on to say here to the Corinthians. And, and this is a seeming paradox between poverty of spirit and yet having all things. Paul himself could say to the Corinthians in his second epistle, at least the, the second one we have in the Word of God, he said, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Beloved, we cannot possess the world until we've been mastered by Christ. And he himself epitomizes this. As creator, he owned all things. That's why it says in John chapter 1, he came unto his own. He owned everything. By virtue of the fact that he had created all things. But yet he was as one that had nothing. He was poor. He emptied himself. He dispossessed himself. He had no place to lay his head. He borrowed a manger. He borrowed a donkey to ride into the city. He had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. So he owned everything. He's our example. The world is ours. Life itself is ours. We're not living under the circumstances. I shudder every time I hear somebody say that when I ask them how they're doing. And you can kind of know after a while what they're going to say. I'm pretty good under the circumstances. What business do you have as a child of God being under the circumstances? Would you put down this verse? I don't have time to have you turn to it, but I want you to turn to it on your own. I hope you'll meditate on it this week. Romans 5, verse 17. Romans 5, verse 17. Paul said, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Stop. Who are they? That's the ones who are saved. If, you, if you've been truly born again, you've received the abundance of grace. You have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, they shall reign in life. I like that. They shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. You're not waiting for the kingdom in the sweet by and by. You're reigning now in life. But not just life is yours, but he goes on to say, death is yours. How in the world can death be my servant? How can I say death is mine? After all, death is the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15. According to Job, death is a king of terrors. All right, here's how death can be yours. Realizing that Christ has taken the sting out of death when he arose. He defanged the serpent. And now he's Lord both of the dead and the living. Through death, as the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 2 verse 14, through death he has destroyed him that had the power of death and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It might shock you to hear me say this, beloved, but we belong neither to life nor to death. We belong to Christ. A martyred missionary was asked by his bandit captors if he was afraid to die. I love his answer. He said, no, not if you shoot straight, because I'll go straight to heaven. And he was killed. He was martyred. He had reigned in life through Christ, and therefore he could look death in the face and say, you are mine too. Well, my time is gone, but 
I'll just throw the last one out for your personal study. There is a coming manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. I save this till last. When you get home, would you do me a favor and yourself? Would you read Revelation 20 and then read Isaiah 65 and compare them? About starting with verse 19 in Isaiah 65. Revelation 20 and Isaiah 65. You say, why do you want me to read that, Pastor? Well, both of them speak of the thousand-year reign of Christ. We believe in a literal millennium. We believe in a literal kingdom age, golden age. It has to be literal. You say, why? Well, it, it cannot, these verses, especially in Isaiah, cannot refer to the eternal state in the new Jerusalem. You say, why? Because no death or sin will be found in the holy city that descends from God out of heaven. But there will be death, it says so in Isaiah 65, during the kingdom reign, a, a, a sinner who lives to be a hundred years of age will be cut off. They'll be in their natural bodies and there will be death. Satan will be bound during this thousand-year period, but at the end of it, he'll be released to be able to deceive men on the earth. How can he deceive men unless they're sinners? And then he'll be permanently consigned to the lake of fire and brimstone. In Isaiah 65, verse 24, it says that men will pray during the, the millennium. That, that verse that we've often quoted, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's that verse. But in the eternal state, what need have we to pray? Prayer will have turned to praise. Hope to glad fruition. What am I saying? And I, I've lost some of you, so it's time to just knock it off. And quit while I'm ahead. Beloved, we are already reigning in the kingdom of heaven. But pardon my English or lack thereof, we ain't seen nothing yet. And if we really see what's in store for us, shall we not fervently pray with more sincerity than ever, O Lord, thy kingdom come. I'm already in it, but I want to see that visible manifestation of it. So I close by asking you, do you know that you're in the kingdom? Be, don't be quick to answer that. There's so many people sitting in independent Baptist churches just like this on Sunday morning that automatically think they're saved. They, they signed a card. They walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer. They were voted in. But they've never been born again. They expect to be admitted to heaven. And Jesus closes His Sermon on the Mount with a warning against those kind of people when He said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not done miracles and many wonderful works? And then Jesus will re respond to them in the most solemn words found in the entire Bible. I never knew you. Depart from me. Do you think that will really happen? Do you think that will happen to people you'll be shocked at to find out they're not truly saved? I think so. Please don't presume on this. Examine your own heart. Are you in the kingdom now? And does poverty of spirit characterize you? Let's pray. Father, help us to examine our hearts in the light of your word.
as we are enabled and enlightened by the Holy Spirit to make sure that we have humbled ourselves to receive the grace of God and the gift of righteousness, the righteousness you demand, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, credited to us by faith. Only then are we in the kingdom. Oh God, some I fear are still in the kingdom of darkness, though they may not know it. Would you shock them? Would you jolt them? Would you convict them? Would you tear them up to help them see how spiritually bankrupt they really are? Oh, do a work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.